Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 156. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 156 you're listening to. You like that delay on Chuck's voice? Working Class Audio. I put that on like several episodes ago, and I forgot about it as I'm doing this on headphones like right now. I thought, oh, that's right. I put that delay on Chuck's voice. I like that. Yeah. Anyhow, why are we here? Today, my guest is Justin Perkins, mastering engineer based out of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to be exact. So check this out. Every time I post a show, I kind of, you know, there's like a whole routine that happens. You know, you post the show and it hits all the different areas and then you got to go and promote the show. So you got to post on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Every time I post on Twitter, every time, one of the first people to always, always like or comment is Justin Perkins. And I kept kept seeing this name pop up and I was like, who is this guy? This guy is like always there, like the first guy to chime in. And so I looked at his website and I was like, holy shit, this guy's worked with some great people and look at this website and wow, I got to talk to this guy. So I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, of course I'll be on. So uh, Justin Perkins is coming up. Some of his clients include uh, Tommy Stinson, of course, of The Replacements. The Replacements are also a client of his. The Figs, The Gaslight Anthem, uh, Screeching Weasel, The Mr. T Experience, Jawbreaker. Uh, yeah, he, all, he recently mixed a new documentary about the band. About the 90s band Jawbreaker. So uh, that's called Don't Break Down. But also outside of the studio, he's played in some... Uh, some of his own bands of course he played with tommy stinson uh for i guess the tommy stinson band but also there is a tommy stinson band called bash and pop which uh there's kind of a tie in there actually because a former guitar player from a band i played used to play with played in bash and pop with uh tommy stinson as well so there's this weird little connection there anyhow justin perkins is coming up he's uh mastering and he's he's got a great setup and it reminds me a lot of the way mastering engineer Chris Graham, who's been on the show in the past, does things where it's all kind of, I wouldn't say, I'm not, when I say automated, I'm talking about not the process of mastering, but the actual, um, not like a lander thing or anything, but the process of how the client interacts and how the flow of information goes. It's really fascinating to me how, you know, you can get bogged down in emails and Justin makes a, makes makes it so that he doesn't have to do that. So he doesn't get bogged down in these emails. And I really like that. Uh, so check that out. And if, uh, speaking of Chris Graham of Chris Graham mastering, uh, if you go back, he was, where was he? He was Chris Graham. He was episode 107. So if you want to go back in time and I noticed there's an error there in the web page. So <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to fix that. Anyhow. Yeah. Uh, Justin Perkins coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, here's something absolutely nutty for you. Okay, you know, I'm a big fan of Nashville. Been to Nashville, uh, have many friends there, really enjoy it. Beautiful place. But they're doing something totally stupid. They are, or have been, uh, I don't know if you heard this story, my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw, 
has a studio at his place, at his house in uh, East Nashville. And uh, the city, a couple of years ago, kind of came at him and said, uh, on an anonymous tip from a neighbor, said, hey, you got to shut this down. You can't have a studio here. And so he said, okay, well, what do I need to do to be in compliance you know, with, with the law here in Nashville? And you know, he needed to get it rezoned. So he got a bunch of his neighbors on board and they signed a petition saying, hey, we're cool with this, no problem. Uh, about 40 people, I think. And uh, so he did what he needed to do. And then they still said, no, you got to shut it down. So long story short, Lidge is suing the city of Nashville. You may have heard about it. You may have seen a post of mine on Facebook about it. And uh, so to get the scoop, I called Lidge and I said, hey, you got to come on the show. You got to tell everybody what's going on so we uh, we can get the idea of uh, how your city government in a city known for music is acting uh completely against that idea by uh, trying to shut you down. I mean, how do you shut down home studios? That's just ridiculous to me. It's not like it's a body shop that you're like working on cars at. So anyhow, let's talk to Lidge. In fact, let's do it right now. I'll call him up and uh, let's have a chat. Let's see what's going on there in Nashville. Yo, yo. Lidge. Matt, my brother from another podcast. That's right. How you doing, man? I'm good. So you're you're suing the city of Nashville? Yes. Um, surprise, surprise. Explain. Uh, it's not every day your friend tells you that they're suing the city of Nashville. Huh? <laughs> no. You want to hear the story? Tell me the story. All right. So um, as you know, I have a home recording studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. I'm a single dad raising my daughter and making a living from my home studio recording local artists, local bands or musicians. Sometimes I have musicians come in from out of town and I've been peacefully and happily doing this for you know 20 years, uh, nearly 20 years from my home. And I have, uh, you know, my home studio was in my house. It was also um, about 10 years ago, I moved it down to the garage and I, I really created a dedicated studio space for it. Um, and in fact, it's even won a Grammy. We won a Grammy for um, a record with Mike Ferris, Shine for All the People, because it was mixed in my studio. So it's really been a, like this wonderful place and it's, it's grown a great community of music around it and um, helped participate in some wonderful records. And two years ago, on 2015, I walked up to my mailbox one day, and I was uh, had just finished doing some mixing, and I pulled out a letter, and it was from Nashville City Codes, and they told me to cease and desist my recording studio because I was operating from my residence. So... That was a bit of a shock, and I knew that there was some, you know, talk and issues going on because there had been some chatter around that in Nashville, but, um, you know, sort of didn't didn't know anything about or didn't realize that Nashville was in the act of, you know, bringing the hammer down on home studios like they were doing to me. So I couldn't sleep for a week straight after I received that letter. It really freaked me out because this is how I, you know, support my family. This is how I pay my mortgage and pay my bills and make a living. I mean, I, I put in my entire life's career into learning how to record here in Nashville, accumulating and, and creating a home studio to be able to work out of. It was always my dream. So you know, when this happened, it was like, it was just like him and the, the world come crashing down on me. But what I decided to do was I, I kind of started talking to friends. I, I talked to lawyers um, and I finally talked to the press too. I did an article with the, the Tennessean anonymously. And then shortly after that, two amazing pro bono public advocacy law firms reached out to me because they said, you know, we really believe that what's happening to you and, and this, this, whole idea of people not being able to 
work from their homes in Nashville is, is wrong, and we want to really help you out. So I'll also preface this by saying what I learned is that Nashville has this um, draconian restriction on residents that says if you um, are trying to operate your home business from your home, you're not allowed to see any customers. No customers or clients can come to your house. So you can't do anything that looks like somebody's allowed to come over to your home. Um, at best, you would be able to work by yourself at your home, you know. And I think they do have a provision that says you could have one employee with you. So that I, I kind of don't even understand what that one's all about. Needless to say, if you're trying to have a recording studio and your passion is to record musicians playing together in front of your microphone, you're not allowed to do that. If, the, if they're going to pay you. So if you want to do it to make a living, um, you could record, I, could, I guess it's a weird thing, man. I guess I could technically record an orchestra every day here as long as they didn't hand me a dollar bill at the end of the session. So clearly that's not going to help me um, support my family or, or pay my mortgage and all that if I can't actually earn a living from it. These two law firms that showed up, one is called the Institute for Justice and the other is the Beacon Center. And their mission is to help citizens and, and homeowners, residences, uh, basically defend their constitutional rights. And first thing we did was I, I tried to go uh, apply for a rezoning of my property, which I've spent the last year, all of 2016, going through this long, long process um, where I attempted to see if I could just simply rezone my residence to a mixed use uh, where it was now a residence, but also commercial as a recording studio or a home recording studio that would have allowed me hopefully to just continue working. You know, I should also say that any allowance for me to do that or an allowance or, or, or the things that I do now as a home studio, mm -hmm. there's nothing about my home that looks anything other than a home, right? It, it, it looks like a house. My studio is professionally soundproofed, so there's no noise or music coming out or anything like that. I got plenty of driveway space where a car can park, just like having friends over. Right. You know, there's no signs or anything like that. So there's, there's absolutely no impact on the neighborhood as a residential neighborhood. So that is kind of a non-issue. That, that comes up sometimes. People ask about that. I applied for this, um, for the rezoning of my property to be, you know, above board and allowed to do it. You know, I was a rare individual to get up in front of the Metro City Council and like openly say, hey, I'm trying to do this above board so that it's, you know, the way you guys are asking. And, you know, I watched the council like really deliberate on how they recognize that we all, you know, Nashville is the core of Nashville is this music community and, and home studios are the fabric of what makes the music community works work and that everybody knows that home studios are are here and they're part of Nashville and they have been for decades but they still despite the fact that I had you know I think 15 of my neighbors came out to the the uh, open public hearing in front of the Metro Council to show support and speak and everything you know they wrote in like seven handwritten letters from my immediate neighbors and and as you say 40 of the neighbors signed a petition of support to allow me to just simply change my home to be able to do it. And still the, the council shot it down. You know, they voted it down um, uh, at the final hearing after a year of going in front of them, going in front of the planning commission, all this stuff. How many people are on the, the city council? I think it's about 40. Oh. But the final the final vote was something like 14 council members voted yes and 20 voted no. Okay. And and of course the the final vote also came on the heels of this super hot topic debate about um 
uh, short-term rental property stuff surrounding Airbnb and everybody was like, oh, yeah, yeah. everybody had been talking for hours and then they finally got to mine and I think everybody was just like, let's vote this no and get out of here and go home and go to bed or something right. <laughs> after a year of hard work. Well, so you announced a couple of days ago that you were one of the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, uh, along with someone who I think is trying to cut hair out of their home. Mm-hmm. So far, I've seen a lot of social media action for you. Uh, haven't heard anything from uh, city council uh, there in Nashville. So yeah, I what should we expect? Any, anything in response yet. Uh, it's been crazy, man. I, I was uh, telling you before we got on this that the first thing that happened was Channel 5 News came over and did a little um, shoot in my studio in an interview. And then they showed that Monday night on the news. And I was so excited. You know, I, I pulled out my iPhone and I just took a, a video of my TV screen. And I just, you know, cheered at the end. And I put that on my Facebook and just shared that with people. And it went completely viral. I mean, it's, I think, you know, within 24, 48 hours, it's got 30,000 views on the video. And everybody is just, you know, commenting and liking and sharing and everything, which is wonderful. And it, it shows how much this strikes a chord with everybody, which is a terrible pun. Sorry about that. But in Nashville, uh, you know, everybody is part of this music community. Everybody understands that home studios should be allowed to make music and make a living. And that it's absurd for the for Music City to be, you know, um, bringing the hammer down on us and, and making it that much more difficult to record. Um, but yeah, so Tuesday morning, we went down and we filed um, with the court the courthouse and did a press release. And, you know, it's ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, they were all there. And it's, it's pretty amazing, man. But I, but I haven't heard anything specifically back. I think there was one person that was on a Facebook um, conversation or Facebook thread that really shared the perspective of a commercial studio owner. And, you know, he, um, he had some, some interesting points, but there was, I mean, there's just been such an overwhelming flood of support from people who feel strongly that, you know, this, that Nashville needs to recognize the value of home studios and just allow us to be able to work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's uh, it's pretty ridiculous. I've talked to uh, a few people about it, and they were just in awe that, especially in a place like Nashville, that's known for having such a, a great music-centric atmosphere, that that was even possible there. That they, that why would they yeah. even do that? Well, you know, I mean, there's a um, cowboy Jack Clement, who's a famous producer and everything. They gave a historical overlay for his home studio they gave it historical recognition and protection so i mean what does that say <laughs> obviously nashville recognizes the value of of the musicians and the home studios and yet they're you know they have this weird loop that they can't close on their own so you know i was left with no other option to than to take action and so i'm i'm part of this lawsuit that is suing the city of nashville for infringing on my constitutional right as a homeowner and as a resident to be able to make a living from my home. Simple as that. Well, you know? to, to give a little perspective too, on this whole thing, if you think about, uh, I'll give you a prime example, Hitsville, USA, located in yeah. uh, Detroit in Michigan, that's in a home. That was a row of homes yeah. that, um, you know, were dedicated to Motown. Imagine if the city of Detroit clamped down on 
that. I mean, that's a I significant know. point in our musical history in the United States. I know it's crazy. Yeah. Um, but so here's a question for you. Okay. Um, what are we talking on? What, what, what are you using to talk to me right now? I'm using a laptop. Is it an Apple Mac laptop by any chance? It is, in fact. Yeah. And, and I'm talking to you on an iPhone. And do we know anything about the history of this amazing technology <laughs> that we're using? Where did I, Apple start? I out? know where this is going. Yeah. Well, and so to. I mean, it started in a garage. It started Apple in a garage. Was founded by Steve Jobs and uh, Wozniak in a garage. That's know? right. Also, so did Hewlett Packard. That's that's a good point. So imagine if the city of Cupertino, California, had clamped down on Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and said, "Sorry, you can't do this in your garage." <laughs> I don't want to imagine that because uh, we might be lacking some home studio action too as a result of that. It's it's pretty ridiculous, and and I gotta say, you know, I, I I'm a, I love Nashville. It's a great place, a lot of great people, very talented people. But I'm sorry, I just completely disagree with the, your city council there about this decision. This is I'll just say it. It's it's the uh, uh, the term would be asinine. It's ridiculous. So yeah. Dude, I am pulling for you in every way. And, you know, we discussed it the other day. It's not like you're looking necessarily for financial compensation. Is that true? You're more looking for the law? No, to no, be I haven't filed for damages. Um, no, no, I haven't filed for damages. It's just a, a lawsuit to protect our right, yep. uh, constitutional right to be able to work from home and make a living. It certainly has been devastating to me financially. Um, sure. You know, the, ever since they dropped the hammer on me, it's been incredibly hard to make a living, to support my family, to keep my mortgage paid and pay my bills. And like, you know, fortunately, I think we all understand this in the music business that you kind of always have to be on your toes and, and flexible and looking for, you know, little ways to, to add the crumbs up at times. Um, so I'm, I'm doing that like anybody would, but um, yeah, no, I haven't filed for damages though. It's been very damaging. Yeah. And let's face facts. The real estate prices are shooting through the roof and it is hard to have businesses like ours in a traditional business space. So we turn to our homes to see if we can make them viable and keep our overhead low. And so I am, uh, like I said, I'm pulling for you. I really hope this changes. And I really hope the, uh, the Nashville city council sees the, uh, sees the light the on benefit. this one. Sees the benefit yeah. and see, sees the light and sees the benefit of this because, you know, it's, it, it's important for Nashville to stay a musically centered town. Yeah. So, you know, Nashville, if you're listening to this podcast right now, um, it's hard enough and has been for as long as music has been around as a profession. It's hard enough to, to uh, make a living in music, but it's so incredibly valuable in the world. Um, it's a valuable for everybody. And, um, you know, so please don't let us be muted in Music City. That's my request. Yeah. Well, on that note, it's good to talk to you. I'm sorry that we're talking over these circumstances. I wish it were for other circumstances, but uh, wishing you luck and pulling for you here. All right. Thanks, Sid. Cheers. Thanks so much. All right. There it is. My brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw, uh, suing the city of Nashville. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on with Lidge and his lawsuit. And uh, yeah, pulling for him. A uh, couple reminders. I want you to stop over to gearsluts.com. We are sponsoring the Audio Life Subforum. You want to check that out if you like the content here on Working Class Audio. Also, 
make sure to stop over at uaudio.com. There's a million reasons why that you'd want to do that, but a uh, few reasons. Uh, they're doing the 12 days of UAD, which has been extended to December 31st. There's a bunch of plug-in deals there. A few videos, uh, of course, from our friends, Jakir King, Advanced Pal. And uh, they're also doing the, the buy any Apollo rack, get a free Octo or Quad satellite for free deal. Yeah. All kinds of stuff going on over there. Uh, oh, look at this. Buy an Apollo twin. Get Neve, Lexicon, and Fairchild plugins free. Gosh, they just are just doing it up. Hey, and just a reminder, NAM is around the corner, and I will be there this year. And if you plan on being there and you have a badge and you know that you can get in because, you know, it's not open to the public, although I think one day they do let the public in. So st stay tuned for that. But don't don't go marching down there unless you have a badge and you're you're prepared to get in. Um, I'll be hanging out there. I'll be hanging out, of course, at the sponsor booths. I'll be over at uh, Audio Technica. I'll be at Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Lawton Audio. And of course, probably uh, see me hanging around with Jules from Gear Sluts. Jules, you're coming, right? If you're listening, I assume you're coming. I'll also be over at, I've been invited to the uh, McDSP booth to hang out with my, uh, my old high school friend, Colin McDowell. Yeah, Colin and I went to high school with each other. I'll be there Friday at 3 p.m., so if you want to stop by the McDSP booth and, uh, you know, plan on uh, stopping in and uh, seeing Colin and I chatting about, I don't know what we're going to chat about, but uh, we're going to chat. Colin's a, a brilliant dude and uh, a fun guy and what a great company too. So uh, yeah, check it out. McDSP booth, NAM 2018. God, what else? Ants. Oh my God. It's that time of year where it's cold and a little bit dry, sometimes wet outside here where I'm at in the Bay Area, and the ants just want to come in. So um, my son, my youngest son, follows a YouTube channel called Ants Canada, and I was looking for a solution, and my nine-year-old literally tells me, oh, Dad, you got you to gotta pick up this stuff called dietaceous earth. I guess it's made of... Uh, these granular pieces, I think it's plankton and a little bit of silica gel in there. And I guess it acts like shards of glass and it pierces the exoskeleton of the ants and it causes them to dehydrate and die. Sounds brutal, but man, ants, my one of my great enemies next to snow. Yeah, not a big fan of either. So uh, yeah, there it is. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk to uh, our, our new friend here, Justin Perkins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Here we are, man. Welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me on. Definitely a, a weekly listener of your show now. Oh, I know. You're you're the one person who always gives me the, the like on, on Twitter. Huh. I'm always like, oh, there's Justin. Yep. Yeah, I cool. like, to, like to help out because you never know. It helps with the algorithms and other people see that you liked it. And, you know, maybe you'll get one more fan from that. Yeah, I always appreciate it and... I think after, I don't know, a, a recent post I made, I you were the first person to like it on uh, on Twitter. And I was like, okay, I got to check this guy's website out. So I checked it out and I was just like, wow, this is super well laid out. Oh, thanks. And, and very uh, inspirational. As I'm in website transition, I was like, I just, I loved how informative it was and how clear it was. I was lucky to find a friend that has a, he's very good at website development and he's also into music and he has a good understanding of what I do. So, you know, he's, he's been really helpful in, in the whole process of building the, 
the website and the, the studio and the business? Website development uh, can be really challenging because, uh, you know, not to, you know, there's a lot of good website developers out there, but like contractors uh, who kind of take your money, take your deposit and run or, or kind of do things in a way that uh, leaves you hanging. I kind of bundle those two types of people together, those bad contractors and bad website developers. Yeah, definitely. And, and I've had some experiences with that before I met Marty, who does my website now. And I really don't think my business would be as successful if it wasn't for him and how well he has it laid out. Because in some ways, it works as sort of a an assistant to me because it has so much information. and People can really get a sense of the cost and all the options and mastering because they may not realize how many different formats they could potentially need for the release. They just think, oh, now it's mastered and we release it. But you know, mm. there's, there's kind of a myriad of different formats they might need, you know, and it sort of spells it out for them and helps them understand. So a lot of times I'll just be sitting there and a project comes in that I've never communicated with this person and I just have all the information and they have all the stuff they need to know. So it's, it's really a time saver. So when you were developing this website, did you sit down with your friend and say, okay, here's what I want to communicate? Like, what's the conversation that one needs to have with their website developer to get to a point like you're at? It was definitely a slow build, and this is probably the third version of it. But you know, initially, it just started as a page with contact information. But then we redid it with a way for people to send me all the information I need instead of having to email them back and say, okay, what are the song titles? What are the, what's the album title? So I just wanted a way for people to just go to the website and send that all at one time. So I have it all in one place. It, it's been a few years of, of progress to get it to where it's at now. And then, then we started adding, you know, frequently asked questions and kind of preparing for the mastering process. So, you know, I get a lot of people that they email me when their project's ready and they say, you know, I've been looking at the materials and I think I'm ready to go. And, and usually they are. And it's just, like I said, it's a big time saver. It cuts down on all those emails of explaining things. And, and I'm happy to do that, but it, it just cuts down on a lot of that. And just so everybody listening can, as they're listening, they might be on their computers or their phones. Where can they go to take a look at your website? What's the URL? Uh, it's mysteryroommastering.com. Yeah, but I was immediately just like drawn into it and thought, ooh, oh. this is a person whose website I need to really take some notes from. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I mean, I, I go to other mastering websites from time to time and it'll say, you know, call or email us to talk about your project. And I feel like a lot of kids, I shouldn't say kids, but, you know, I'm 30, I'm going to be 37 in a few weeks. And I feel like a lot of people that are younger than me, they, they, they don't have time for that. They just want to go and to the website and give me the information. You know, they, they don't want a big, long conversation about it. Um, some of the older clients do want to have a phone chat or email, and that's fine too. But I think that really helps um, keep from losing some business just to have it all laid out there. You know, if you wanted to, you could go to the website right now and send me everything I need, you know, all the data, all the files, and it just really helps cut down on time. Yeah, it really does. I'm going to just go there right now because I want to talk to you about a couple aspects of it. Sure. Um, First of all, one of the, the first things that you see when you go to the website is calculate project right up front. Yeah, that was Marty's idea. You know, he's he does web development for a company too, you know, his day job. And I think they are more in the marketing and advertising world. So he's got a good eye and where I'm really bad at the marketing and all that kind of stuff. It's not my expertise. This is great. Really kind of solves that problem of well, how much is it going to cost? Well, yeah, we put that right up front. And, you know, I don't like to hide my <laughs> rates. I don't like to do like a, 
you know, some people do a, an indie rate and a major label rate, you know, well, there is no major labels anymore. I mean, there are, but <laughs> it's that kind of thinking is a little outdated to me. I mean, everyone's on a budget. I try to be on that middle ground. So yeah, some people have told me that my rates are a little low, but I've also know that there's bands that I'm a little out of reach for rate wise. So I think I'm in a kind of a sweet spot for at least for this area and for where I'm at professionally. So I just like to put the rates right out there. I don't like to play games with, you know, if you're, if I know that you're more successful than someone else, you're going to pay more. I just, I just think those days are gone. The internet, everything's so out in the open now. It's, it's different than the old days where things were more concealed. You know, I'm talking 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. Let me ask you about a couple of things that I'm seeing here in the in the project variables when you're calculating a project. One of the first things that catches my attention is the formats. Uh, right. Obviously, online digital distribution makes sense. Compact disc, that makes sense. Vinyl, of course, that makes sense now. Cassette, tell me about that. Yep. Um, you know, bands are starting to release cassettes again. And, you know, there's not a whole lot that I can do because there's... There's a lot of variables and cassette types, and there's really only one main place I know of in the U.S. making cassettes. But the big thing there is that I format it in a way where it's one file for program A or side A and one file for program B. Because you don't want to send these off and then have whoever's making the cassette wonder if should there be two seconds between these files. You know, you just want to send them one file for the entire side program as they call it so it's you know when i make a vinyl pre-master then there are some things to optimize it for vinyl the cassette world is just a little too vague right now I'd, I'd honestly be guessing if i made some sonic tweaks for for cassette tape i mean and usually bands are making you know 100 copies and they're not necessarily audio files if that makes sense yeah so the cassette pre-master is more of making it easy for them so that when they deliver it to the cassette duplicator it's pretty black and white here's side a here's side b um, the transition between songs is not going to get changed in any way. I'd love to actually go to where cassettes are made and ask more questions about it. But for now, it's more of a, a formatting in the sense of, you know, keeping the songs in the right order and things like that. Yeah. Do you provide ISRC codes to your clients? Yeah, I can. You know, I pay a yearly fee to ISRC to be able to do that. Some clients have their own already. And some people just don't know what they are or don't care. Um, I started doing it because I would get in these situations where I, the mastering's done and I, everything's cool. And a few weeks later, I get an email saying, hey, we got the ISRC codes from our digital distributor. Can you put them on the CD master? And I'd say, well, <laughs> you know, I think the CDs are already being pressed, so probably not. So I kind of do that as a way to just clear up any situations like that. You know, I, I can generate them for them. They'll be on the CD master. They'll be embedded in the WAV files, but at the end of the day, they still have to provide that information separately. But mm -hmm. they can use the same codes. You know, I wish you know when you upload your waves to CD Baby or wherever you, whoever you use. Uh, I know DistroKid you talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. I actually know very little about. You know, I don't release music myself, so I don't know who's better than another. But point being, you know, I can put metadata in the WAV files, but the the artist or client still needs to submit that separately so they make sure it's straight. The whole point of that is if, if I do it from the start, then they can be sure that it's on the CD and everything's good to go. Everything's in order. What do you use to embed the ISRC code and the metadata in uh, to the WAV file? I use WaveLab, which is, you know, it's a mastering DAW. I don't use it for the entire mastering process, but I use it to finalize masters. And 
for me, it makes my life easier. I just I assemble the album once, I enter in the data once, and whether it's CD text or metadata, it all gets pushed to the proper place. So it's sort of like on autopilot. You know, I, I enter it in once and the information goes everywhere. Sometimes I'll see on forums people griping about, you know, how they don't like that part of the job and it's a hassle and it's kind of time consuming and tedious. But if I think if you use the right software, it doesn't have to be. So I use WaveLab. There's other apps out there that can that are strictly for metadata. That's a whole nother step. If you if you're doing mastering every day, all day, it's a big slowdown. If you're mastering a couple albums a year, it's probably not a big deal because it's not gonna take up a lot of your time. Wow. You've got a lot of a lot of choices here. This is really great. It's and it's very straight ahead. Yeah. I know for some people it's a little overwhelming. And I, I tell people, you know, let me know if you have any questions. And we decided to put those little question mark icons. I think they're called nodes. Mm-hmm. So if if you don't know what ISRC code is, you can click on that question mark. And it's probably gonna explain it as best as I can if you were to call me or email me. But and you use the uh, looks like you use the Hoffa DDP player. Is that right? Yeah, I've been using that pretty much since it came out. What I like about it is that clients don't have to install additional software. They just download the file and click on it. There's another yeah. company that makes one, but they have to download the software and authorize it with a code. And it, for some people, that's a bit much. And even once in a while, people get tripped up with the Hoffa one, but it's it's really pretty simple and user-friendly. What I like about it is that even if they're not making a CD, I'll send out a DDP because that's the I think that's the best way to listen to the album in sequence. Um, if you're sending out MP3s or waves, you get someone that loads it into iTunes and they have their settings weird. Years ago, I would get so many messages like, hey, these songs were supposed to crossfade and they don't. And I would say, well, you know, what are you using to listen to it? And then you know, eventually I found out about these tools, but it reduces the potential for user error. So I, I like to use that just then we were all on the same page. You have an area here for file upload. Where does that go to? I use WeTransfer for that. I don't prefer WeTransfer for sending out files because you don't have a lot of like management options with the files, but I liked the the We WeTransfer channel for clients to upload files to me because it's very simple. I feel like mm-hmm. it's very simple for the user and I can download everything with one click. It's great. I mean, just before we did this podcast, I got some files from a, a new client that didn't use that in their Google Drive links. So I'm clicking like five times to get one file and I got to do that for 10 songs. I mean, that's no fun. So I like the WeTransfer because it's just, it's pretty streamlined. I would like a way that I didn't even have to download it, but we'll get there someday. For now, this is... I think the most streamlined approach. And what I like also is that the the client gets an email when the files are uploaded. They get an email when I've downloaded them. That's a pretty good way to keep it all managed. That's a function of WeTransfer? Yeah, you pay a yearly fee. It's WeTransfer Plus, I believe. And that gives you your own channel, you know, your own URL. You can put it on your website and say, you know, if you need to send me files, click this link. They can select the files they want to send you. They can type in a short message. And there's a nice big progress meter I was using one years ago that didn't have a progress meter and you know wave files can be big and clients kept thinking it was frozen so that's no oh, good. Yeah. Let's say well you just got to wait a while. For now we transfer is is my preferred method just to get files. I don't really have the tech skills to set up my own custom FTP any of that kind of stuff. So I'm happy to pay the the fee just to have this nice upload page. Yeah. So that that technically takes you off of my website, but it, I try to make it look like it's part of the website. Tell me about this aspect, uh, the Light Touch Digital Mastering Service. 
it's more of a recent thing. You know, it's, it's becoming so common for mixing engineers to put, you know, m- limiting and stuff on their mixes because clients have a hard time when it's not loud. They say, well, this doesn't sound loud like this other thing I'm comparing it to. And I got in a few situations where, I, you know, I'd be getting mixes in that have this extreme limiting and either the mix person doesn't want to take it off or can't, or we just can't get go back to that state. You know, the, the sessions are lost. Or in one particular case, you know, I, I'm, I asked the client, I said, you know, can you remove the limiting so I have headroom to work with and, you know, everything will be great. And I sent it back to him and he said, you know, I, I like your master, but I'm just really attached to the, the rough master that we did, but we want it louder. And it was just this tough situation. And I actually turned the project down. But a few days later, I said, well, I just wonder what's what'll happen if I just take his limited version and try to make it louder, you know. It was just an experiment, and he really he actually liked it, which I was surprised by. And I thought, well, maybe there's a, a market for this where, you know, guys can get their stuff, you know, 90% there, but they're not comfortable getting at that last 10%. Or maybe they have a batch of songs that on their own they're, they're happy with, but they're not, um, they don't quite sit well together as a group. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, I can take what they have. It, it, it's, it's not a great place to start from, I'll admit that. It, it'd be, I would prefer to do a more traditional approach um, where you have full headroom, you know, full, more dynamics. But, you know, it basically started as a more affordable option. And the other aspect of it too is for people that can get the sounds they want, but they don't know much about the formatting, like making a CD master um, and all this sequencing and ISRC codes. I mean, there's, there's you know, there's some definitely some mix engineers that, they can get really great sounds and, you know, they're, they're very competent, but then they just don't know anything about that side of the mastering process. So I, I just thought I'd throw it out there as sort of an affordable alternative to to help them wrap up their work, you know, because whether they, you know, some people, they, they might just get attached to some of the rough limiting that they're doing and they just, that's how it has to be now. And you could send it to the greatest mastering engineer in the world and they would still just prefer how they had it in the first place. And, and that's fine, but there's still more to be done in mastering after the limiting. You know, there's the sequencing, formatting, things like that. Let's go back a bit. What's uh, the pivotal point that got you into audio? That uh, the the pivotal point where you started to do audio professionally? I should ask. Well, professionally, it's it's a bit of a blur. You know, I started. I feel like this story gets told a lot on this uh, podcast, but you know, I started on one of those cassette eight tracks, the Tascam thing. And I was in a in middle school, we had bands and, you know, recording studios were pretty expensive back then. And we had no business being in one. At the music store, we found a guy with a flyer and said, you know, you can rent my eight track and some mics. So he dropped it off. And I guess I paid the most attention when he dropped it off. And I ended up being in charge of running the thing. You know, we recorded our stuff and then other bands started to hear that and asked if I would record them. And I never really had a desire to do that. I didn't th- even think it, it never crossed my mind, but slowly I've started getting more asked to do more recordings for other bands and more and more bands started asking me to record them and I'm just working out of my dad's basement or occasionally I would go to their basement practice space but I knew that it was just demo quality I knew that wasn't something you're going to really release and so there was a studio up in Green Bay Wisconsin which is about an hour north of where I lived you know when bands would record there you get their CD you could just tell that they recorded there because it sounded great he was so good at like the rock and punk you know drum sound even and this is back before it was easy to just trigger stuff. You you know you had to get that intensity out of the drummer. 
and he was just great at that. You know, so we went there and did a, we did a, like a, a dozen songs and it ended up getting released by a subsidiary of Lookout Records. Yeah, so we kind of stripped it down to an EP. You know, it wasn't meant to be released, but we kind of cobbled the EP out of it that was releasable. In the meantime, I'm still recording bands at my house or my dad's basement. And uh, the the guy, the, the good studio in Green Bay, he said, you know, he, he got out of his basement. He built out a nice facility and he invited our band in to, to test it out because he knew we'd be doing another album for Lookout. By this time, the subsidiary got sold to Lookout. So we're basically working with Lookout. And uh, you know, he wanted us to do our next record there. So he, he invited us in to do one song just to test the waters, probably for, for him and for us. And it turned out great. But I ended up bringing some recording gear with me up to the to the session and I forgot it somehow. I don't know how you forget that, but I left it there. <laughs> and this is this is before cell phones. So he, he eventually calls my dad's house and says, Hey, you know, Justin left some stuff here, just letting him know. And my dad, I think kind of jokingly said, you know, my dad was very cool about me recording bands, but I think he jokingly said, Well, why doesn't he just bring it all up there and st- and work there? And I think um I think a light bulb went off in the studio owner's head because he he still worked a full-time job. It was kind of a weird thing where he worked a lot of days off, a lot of days on and a lot of days off. So there was chunks of time where the studio was empty and a, kind of a light bulb went off and I, I got invited to bring my stuff up there and start recording my clients up there. And then that also spilled into recording some of his clients that he didn't have time to, you know, maybe pick up an overdub session for some of his projects. So I was sort of straddling. I was doing some of my own clients and some of his clients. And uh, and through this time, I'm playing in bands and I had some part-time jobs, you know, uh, delivering pizzas, that kind of thing. You know, it got to the point where my part-time job was preventing me from getting projects done quickly. So I realized this part-time job is getting in my way. You know, I could be mixing, you know. I had this part-time job where I'd work like Monday and Tuesday you know, when things are generally quieter with bands, you know, I started to realize I could fill those days with editing and mixing. So I, I just quit the job and jumped in full time. I never lived in Green Bay. I always made the commute. It was like 45 minutes to an hour. Sometimes I would sleep at the studio. You know, I remember driving to the library to check my email in the morning. It was like right before smartphones and all that stuff. So it's kind of a different time. You know, just recording lots and lots of, of local bands Sometimes regional bands would come through, but eventually I made the move down to Madison. So I'd say at that point I was doing it professionally in the sense that it was my only source of income. You know, I also played in a band, but that, that didn't really pay the bills. That was more of a, a supplemental thing. But it was also a great way to meet other bands that needed to record. You know, I was networking without realizing it. I was just it was a great way to get more work. So hmm. eventually, you know, a, a friend of mine had told me that Smart Studios in Madison Wisconsin was looking for another engineer. And I think it was a similar deal where they were looking for someone that could bring in their own clients, but also pick up projects that didn't have an engineer. Um, so I did that for a couple of years too. I was on staff at Smart, but it wasn't, there was no guaranteed hours. It, it could be zero to 40 or more of from them, but I could bring in my own work too. And I did a lot of that. So and so the listener knows Smart Studios is Butch Vig's place. Yeah, I had never been there till I went down there to meet them. You know, it was always this legendary place, but it's actually it's it's not a huge building. A lot of big sounds came out of that small building. So that was a big deal for me. It was the first time I moved out of my hometown, you know, living in Madison. I did that for a few years, and you know, I, I knew I could see the way the recording industry was going. I could see that Smart was barely hanging on. 
you know, they just had too much overhead. You know, they had a, they had a, like a, I don't know if he was full-time at one point, but they had a technician to just work on the console and equipment. And there's just a lot of overhead with that, with that building. And I could see the way of the future where we have these smaller project studios, not necessarily smaller in size, but um, certainly not going to have a huge six figure console in it or anything like that. You know, this is when this was probably 2005 when it was starting to become possible to work completely in the box. And I realized that maybe having my own studio is the way to go, but I, I wasn't really attached to Madison. So I moved to Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I didn't open my own studio right away. I, I sort of reached out to some studios that existed to see if I could rent their space, you know, for projects on a daily basis or, you know, a, f a block of a few days at a time. So after being in Milwaukee for a couple of years, you know, and, and this whole time I'm sort of doing a little more mastering work, you know, um, I, I regret it on some projects, but there's those projects where there's no budget for mastering. The band doesn't know what mastering really is. Um, and especially in the days when I was in Green Bay, I mean, it was so, it's kind of isolating up in Green Bay. It's, it's not a huge town. It's not really close to anything. It's just sort of up there. And, you know, f to, to convince a band that they needed to drive to Milwaukee and, go to that mastering studio and spend, you know, a chunk of change. It just wasn't happening. I started, you know, learning more about what mastering is and what it isn't and, and the whole process and developing my ears. And where did you go to for learning what you did about mastering? Where, where did the uh, knowledge come a lot from? Of it, a lot of it was trial and error. You know, I never, I never mentored with a mastering engineer. There was a mastering studio in Milwaukee a guy named Trevor Sadler had a, he was kind of the go-to guy in Milwaukee and he, he was affordable. It was different times. You know, he had an indie rate and a major label rate and, you know, his local indie band rate was, was fairly affordable for most serious bands. So some of the projects I did got to go to him, but there was times when I had to be the guy and I, I regret doing that because I really believe that they're separate processes, but this is all hindsight, you know? So here I am kind of learning the art of mastering. And at, by the time I got to Milwaukee, I was getting calls specifically for mastering because they would say hey i saw on the back of this record that you mastered it you know can you master our record and initially i had to say well i don't really consider myself a mastering engineer but <laughs> I'll, I'll do it and see if you like it you know and i still have this policy where if you don't like the work i don't i can't take your money you know i'm pretty upfront about that you know yeah, i think john cunaberti has that same policy i mean I, I can probably count on one hand how many times it's happened i'm not you know it does happen where it's just maybe it's not i'm not the right fit it does happen, but I think that policy is so much easier than maybe the opposite of that. So um, mm -hmm. anyway, my point is, you know, I'm like, you know, I'll master this. All you can say, the worst that can happen is you won't like it and you can move on to somebody else. So I think the pivotal point in my mastering career was this guy, Trevor Sadler. He had, he built out a great mastering room in Milwaukee. And at some point he wanted to move out of the state, but he didn't want to sell the building. And he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'm not sure exactly what he said, but he basically asked if I wanted to rent his his space. And not with the gear, but it had the nice build out. And I thought about it for a while. And you know, I, I was still straddling recording, straddling mixing and mastering, which is a tough thing to do, I found out, because the, the schedules are so different. You know, you can master an album in a day. You mm -hmm. can spend a whole day recording a song or mixing a song. So I was getting in these jams where, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I was getting in these situations where I would have a band in for three or four days, but someone would need a mastering tweak. And I just, I got tired of juggling that. But moving back a little bit, I ended up renting Trevor's mastering room because it had a front room that could be used for overdubs. So I'm like, okay, this is perfect. I, if I need to do drums, I go to a, a studio that can do drums. Um, 
I can rent this space that works great as a mixing and mastering room because it's the control room was huge and sounded great. And then it has a nice overdub room for once drums are done. So I kind of realized that for all the money I'm spending renting out studios, I can cover the rent of my own space. Hmm. And I went into it knowing that I'm never really going to do drums here. I think some people, you know, I would rent it out as well. I think drums were recorded in there, but I really only had a four channel snake, you know, some for a couple guitar mics and a vocal mic. I mean, it was really a dead room. So anyways, I got the chance to rent this mastering studio. And, and that's sort of when I invested in some some outboard mastering gear. You know, up until then, I'm just mastering in the box, um, in the software. The decision to invest in outboard gear, where did that come from? Why did you do it? You know, I felt, you know, I feel like at that time, especially plugins, I think plugins are great now. I think, you know, this is going on 10 years ago, nine years ago. I just don't think the software and plugin world was quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something that sort of sets you apart in some cases. And now it's not as true because I know there's great mastering engineers working all in the box. But for a time, it sort of set you apart as being a little more serious about it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wouldn't necessarily think that today. But at that time, that was sort of the thinking. One of the first things I invested in was the Crane Song, you know, Avocet, just because you got to be able to hear what you're doing. You can have all the outboard gear in the world, but if you can't hear what it's doing, you know, you don't know if you're making good decisions. So. I didn't go too crazy at first. I, I decided to get one EQ and one compressor for outboard work. And I mostly wanted, you know, as nice as monitors uh, as I could afford in the Avocet to be able to hear what I'm doing. So that was the initial push, you know, and the crane song head to get in and out of the box. Um, you know, and I, I have to thank Trevor for this, but being able to sort of jump into his space gave the studio a little bit of credibility, you know, instant credibility right there because people are like, well, that guy moved, but now there's a new guy there, and now he's the guy. And uh, <laughs> I got a few projects just because of that, um, which was helpful. Interesting, interesting. Um, the speakers that you chose, what were what are those? Initially, I was a little naive, and I had some Adams. I forget the model number, but I knew right away that was not cutting it. I wasn't happy with how things were translating. I moved up to some Focal Twins which I was happy with the sound with, and I've used those for a few years. Because, um, again, I was still dabbling in, in mix, you know, taking on mixing projects, you know, luckily I got to the point where I could really just choose the bands I wanted to work with on a mixing and recording level, you know, so it was really the bands that I had worked with previously that I knew were great bands, easy to work with, good guys, that kind of thing. I was really lucky. So I had these Focal Twins and they were, they, they served me for a few years, but they're not necessarily full range mastering monitors. So eventually I moved up to these PSI monitors, which are made in Switzerland. Um, and they're, they're, they're full range and they're, they're intended to be mastering towers. Um, and they're just, I actually went to their factory this last month when I was over in Europe. They make everything by hand and uh, mm-hmm. just a real high quality speaker. So that's what I'm using now is the PSI. So my monitors have been a little bit of a a moving target. Yeah, but obviously one of the most important things in the setup along with the the monitor controller. Yeah, when I got in, I was a little bit naive, you know, I just didn't know. And I also, I didn't have necessarily the budget for some, you know, monitors that get close to five figures. It just wasn't in the cards. I knew it was going to be a, a growing process. Yeah, now if you were to start over today, knowing what you know now, would you set your, do your setup different? It's possible. I mean, I, I ended up acquiring a, a fair amount of outboard gear, which I still think on some projects, and I'm just going to say on some projects, it's. I think it still gives a little bit of, it, it takes it to that, that last 10% 
Although I don't use it on every, you know, there's some projects where I stay all digital. So I would have to have that discussion and trial and error with myself really to see how, how much outboard I would purchase at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was starting today, I would definitely, and, and I see people ask this online a lot, but I mean, you know, they want to get into mastering and they say, you know, what, what EQ should I get? And it's like, well, do you have converters that are going to be worth going out of and back into, or are you better off staying digital and, you know, do you have speakers that are really telling you what's going on? People want to get to the fun stuff and they want to skip over the the more practical stuff that actually allows you to do your job better. You know, mm-hmm. you just, I can't stress how important the monitoring is. Um, and that's why you really, in mastering studios, you really just see it's one set of speakers and they're just dialed in perfectly. You know, mixing rooms, you, you tend to see two or three sets of speakers. But a lot of mastering rooms just have one set of speakers and probably a nice set of headphones for quality control. Handling your clients when they are remote, are there any challenges with that? Or Not really. The website is pretty streamlined where not a lot of questions need to be asked, and I'm happy to answer them, but I don't do attended sessions anymore because I actually have a page on my website about it that I can explain it in more detail. But And it's not that I don't want people's feedback. You know, I love feedback, but I think it's, you're, it's more beneficial to listen to it in a place where you're used to listening to music. And I had this problem when I used to bring my projects to a mastering to Trevor before I would was mastering. I would go to a studio. It sounded impressive and huge. He had these huge speakers. I went to the ceiling, but I didn't know what I was hearing. You know, I, I wouldn't have been comfortable making a suggestion about any anything other than maybe the spacing between songs. But now that's so easy to do online that so I basically don't I just don't do attended sessions anymore. And it allows me to work more quickly and more affordably. And for me, it works. I might lose a little bit of work because of it, but it's hard to say how much. But at this point, I'm pretty busy. So I just keep keep with that philosophy. What percentage um, of your clients come from online versus locally? I would say over half. I would say less than half of the clients I I have, you know, I could I would know who they are in person or um, you know, could call them up mm-hmm. without having to ask, you know. You know, I I do have a lot of repeat clients and you know, people I've known from being in bands and back in the day and stuff like that, but uh, a lot of it is people that even if they wanted to attend the session, they would be traveling from out of state, which is just not happening. And the other thing with the attended sessions thing is usually mixing just takes it always takes a little longer than you expect. You know, uh, when I did do attended sessions, I was constantly juggling the schedule around, like someone's not quite ready. So we're going to switch this around and that around. And uh, mm. now I don't have to do that anymore. I just have a, a project. I just have a piece of software that manages all my projects. And, and what is that? OmniFocus. It's similar to Trello. I don't know if you know Trello. Yeah, I've heard of Trello. I was using that because my website guy likes to use that for when I have changes to the website. But I switched to OmniFocus because I'm, I'm a big Mac user and I just like when everything's in sync, you know, it's like, so they have a, a Mac app and an iPad, iPhone app, and everything's mm-hmm. just really nicely in sync. Um, so I use OmniFocus just to manage projects. So when you submit that form on my website, it comes to my email, but it also goes to this OmniFocus app and then I can convert it to a project and just put like a due date if, if there's a, if it needs to be done by a certain date and I can put the status, you know, if, if I'm waiting for approval, things like that. You know, years ago, I was managing all this with email and iCal. My workload just got too overwhelming to, to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, I, d- I did some traveling earlier this year, more tr- or more traveling than I've done in a long time. And so I, I had a hard time scheduling 
actual dates for projects because my schedule is a little more unpredictable. OmniFocus is nice because it just puts it in a, in a priority order. Like, you know, this needs to be done first, second, third, that kind of thing. Yeah, if someone's looking for a, a an app like that, I would definitely suggest OmniFocus. Okay, I'll put that in the or, show notes for people yeah. if they want to check that out. Or if you're more of a bear, you know, Trello gets the job done too. Um, I just, OmniFocus has a few more little like perks and the whole, it's got the whole Mac aesthetic so if, if that's more of your thing, you might like that app a little better. Justin Perkins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You know what time it is. We're going to pause for a bit. We're going to talk about our friends, Audio-Technica. Real brief, though, here. Just want to make sure that you know that uh, their booth is going, their NAM booth, I should say, is uh, going to be booth number 15311. 15311, that's right. I will be hanging out there, talking with my friend Gary Boss, who just knows everything there is to know about Audio-Technica. So if you got a, uh, a question about Audio-Technica, of course, you'll want to come and talk to Gary because he knows what is up. So be sure and do that. So that's, uh, I mentioned it in the, in the uh, monologue there. It's uh, January 25th through the 28th. And uh, yeah, the booth again, 15311. Come on by and say hello to Gary Boss of Audio-Technica and say hello to me because I'll be hanging out there as well. And that's it. Let's get back into it with our friend, Justin Perkins, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. In a sense, there's a little bit of automation happening with the clients because, you know, you go to the website, it answers pretty much all the questions one would have in a mastering situation. It answers the questions about cost and time frame and formats and all of that. That all feeds into OmniFocus. Yeah. So you as you say you spend less time emailing back and forth which can just be a huge time suck yeah i don't know what it is before i had this you know bands would send me like a text file of their titles but then the album title wouldn't be on there it's like or the band name or it's like does the band name start with a the or do you omit the the you know all these little details i mean it's probably saved me thousands of emails of mm -hmm. little questions like that so really interesting in so many ways because the paradigm of mastering and and client management really has changed a lot over the years. I come from the old school originally where you showed up to the mastering session to sit with the mastering engineer and listen through and get yeah. your CD reference at the end and, you know, run home and yeah, 1500 I mean, to $2,000 later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I caught the tail end of that as well. I mean, there was just things that were hard to do via internet. I mean, sending the album to the mastering engineer wasn't, it would, you, you could take days to upload it back mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, late, late nineties. It just wasn't a possibility. So you actually had to go there with the, with the DAT tape or even when things were on hard drives, it was the internet bandwidth wasn't really there to send like these big files. So I remember those days, but I think the, the the increased internet speeds just really help help that transition. And everyone's always at a computer or a mobile device, and everyone's got a computer in their pocket, basically. So yeah, you know, and I think back then, you know, and and going back decades ago, like in the '60s, you know, a lot of times people wouldn't even hear their thing until it was pressed. Yeah, I mean, I mean and then obviously that's too late to make any comments. Um, but I, yeah, I just think the whole internet is really just. The, the evolution of the internet has really helped this business be more economical and, and practical. The place that you're at now, are you still renting that space or are you at your own house? Um, now I'm at my house. I, 
I could, I got a sense that that building was going to get sold. You know, Trevor, he, uh, I don't know the whole story, but he basically wanted to move out of the state and, and, um, he still does mastering, but I knew that the building was going to get sold eventually. And I got an opportunity to move to a different building, a really nice build out, but it was further, further from my house and not all that far, um, on a map, but, um, traffic wise, it was kind of killing me, you know, it was, <laughs> it was eating up the better part of an hour of my day. Um, by the time I like, you know, make, you know, go there and I, I know people in LA or New York are going to think that's nothing, but, um, for me, it was, you know, an hour of my day that I could be productive. So yeah, I was there for maybe a year or two. And then my wife and I, we just, we happened, we bought this house, not with any intentions of a studio of ever being here. Uh, we just bought the house cause we wanted to buy a house and I had like a listening room, a rec room basically for with the TV and the stereo and I just realized, you know, how good it already sounded for listening. And it was actually, looking back, it's actually the quietest space I've worked in as far as any outside noise, things like that. So it's really peaceful. Is and, it a basement? Uh, it is a basement. You know, it sounds so lame to say you work in your basement, I think. But after listening to this podcast, too, I, I feel like that's everyone's working from home now. Even some really big records are made at home. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, I did some treatment to it and stuff like that. And I knew, like I said, I knew going in that it already sounded pretty nice because I was using it for recreational listening. Um, but it got to the point where I was just not working with any bands anymore. I, you know, I sold any recording gear that I had left over and I, I just knew that, you know, I don't, all I need is a listening room. I can focus on making that the best that it can be. It's, it's, it, it just, I'm, I'm able to get things done just so much more quickly and economically, you know, my overhead's low, my commute is short, that kind of thing. With everything available to you in terms of these tools, the internet makes total sense to work at home. Makes total financial sense. Um, you know, you can put your, your the the dollars that you would spend on rent for a building. You can uh, you know put that money elsewhere. Yeah, it's allowed me to invest a little bit more in equipment and slow down slow down a little bit if I want to. I mean, I also you know I do some beta testing for Wave Lab actually, and that I don't get paid for that, but I get paid in the sense that I'm able to. I was able to tailor some things to my workflow, you know, make suggestions like, hey, it'd be great if you could do this. And then a few re a few updates later, you can do that. And that's saving me a lot of time. So mm -hmm. to me, it's worthwhile to do that. I mean, ideally, I would, I'd love to build a new garage and have the studio be above it and just kind of do that. But we have to decide if we're going to stay here or move to a different location to do that. Yeah. Well, and when you have a basement, you are kind of removed from some of the noise making things that's that, true you know a spot above a garage would would have yeah it would definitely be louder and we're not far from the airport so i mean that is some, that is a concern so right now i'm sort of in a holding pattern you know i i'm i'm really happy with how things are translating i'm comfortable here the room is plenty big for listening um I'd like to get into a place with some taller ceilings at some point but i didn't intend to be here this long when i moved when i moved here i thought maybe a year of working down here until I get something figured out closer to home again. But mm -hmm. I just haven't had the need to, to change. Working from home, my challenges are always, you know, feeling like, wow, I got to get out of here sometimes. And the kitchen's really close. So oh, oh, I yeah. think I need another cup of coffee or I think I'm going to have a snack or yep. do you have those same issues? It can be. I mean, the way I frame it is that it's also good to take ear breaks. And especially when I'm mastering, like with the analog gear, I, there's always printing time involved. You know, I, I can't just render it at half, you know, like 50 
times speed. You know, I have a three minute song is going to take three minutes to print. So that gives me a chance to get up and stretch and grab something to drink or a snack or that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I think it actually works well because I think if I was stuck in a studio that wasn't my house, you know, I would, you know, I could always check. There's always emails to check and things to look at on the internet. But, you know, I would sort of just be doing that to fill time while things print. So, you know, it would be distracting if I'm trying to record or mix because then maybe you're not doing as many takes or your mix is going to take longer to get done because you're stopping and starting so much. But really, in in this process, there are times where you just got to let it print in real time, uh, Mm -hmm. whether it's one song or a batch of songs. It's not as hard as I thought it would be. And I know some people would have serious, serious distraction issues working from home. But, you know, I like it. I like being able to run out to the store in the middle of the day when no one's there mm-hmm. before it gets crazy. That's kind of my thing. Talk to me about your thoughts on uh, audio and money and uh, how the two can sometimes be at odds with each other in terms of our our decisions about buying equipment versus saving money. And what's yeah, your approach? It, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I my approach was a little bit kamikaze. You know, I was lucky enough to work in studios that were already, you know, furnished with equipment although i had some kind of cheap stuff left over from my basement recording days and but you know when i got to milwaukee the studio i was working at a lot was kind of lacking some of the stuff i got used to having you know like smart had some nice neve preamps and the studio that i was working at in milwaukee just had a i think a soundcraft board and i was like ah nothing wrong with that but i really just love for rock stuff, plugging into a, a Neve kind of thing or API. So I, I invested in a little bit of stuff just to have on hand that I could take with me as well. Uh, the way I look at it is, you know, if, you, if you're busy enough to justify the payments on it or busy enough to save up and purchase it, you know, and if it's something that's going to at least not lose a lot of value. I mean, I'm of the belief that, you know, save up for the thing that you're only going to have to buy once instead of buying the cheap version, having it break or wear out or just... Uh, you outgrow it and then you have to sell it for next, basically give it away and buy, and then buy the thing you really wanted in the first place. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there's, yeah. I just, I'm, that's, that's just my belief. Cause I, I just don't have, I don't, I guess, I don't know if it's a patience thing. I mean, I, people always told me in the studio, I was very patient with them. Like when they're back in my recording days, like, you know, they always say how patient I was, but when it comes to getting things set up the way I want, I'm not always as patient. I just want it to be, I had, I get this idea and then I just want it to be that. So you know, I've I've purchased things on credit card before, but you just you got to pay it off disciplined. You got to be disciplined about it and just get it paid off before you're paying for it twice. In that regard, you know, so you just got to be really careful about it. But I, I've been lucky enough to be busy, you know, busy enough where I can justify it. But I know not everybody is. Yeah, I I got to say that my purchase uh, of this Grace monitor controller, the M905. I'm really happy I did that. It's it's a solid piece of gear. Yeah, those are great too. I mean, when I was looking around, it was between the Grace and the Crane Song. I think I went with Crane Song because they're actually a Wisconsin company, although they're way at the top, like basically up by close to Canada. Um, yeah. So I've never been there, but I just sort of went with that. Maybe that was the tipping factor. But what are the mistakes that you've made in the past, and uh, what's you know, what have you learned from those mistakes in terms of, you know, how you how you deal with things now? You know, I think I'm still in a growing phase where, you know, maybe I'll know in 10 years if I've made any major mistakes. But, you know, right now my philosophy is just work as much as I can and save as much as I can. Um, but I understand that there is cost to doing business. You know, I I do think in a lot of ways you have to spend a little money to make money. You got to invest in yourself and in your tools. 
Mm -hmm. um, but nobody should be going into like bankruptcy trying to do this. I think, you know, I think on a global level, this has all come natural. You know, I just thinking back to recording our bands in middle school, like I never, never got, I was never even very technically minded. You know, I was never the kid that took things apart to see how they went back together. We just wanted to make some noise and record it. And that turned into other people wanting me to do that for them. <laughs> and uh, so this whole thing came about very naturally. I mean, I didn't try to go to school and like go get a job like blindly in this field. You know, I think, I think with whatever you're going to do with your life, you just have to have a passion for it. And you, I mean, I think back to those days, you know, I would stay up as late as I would be falling asleep, you know, trying to finish whatever I was working on. And you got to just love it that much. You have to want to do it, you know, 24 seven, I think, to really get your skill set to a point where you can make a living at it. What are the sources of continued education for yourself? Where do you seek extra knowledge? When I really started to take mastering seriously, um, Bob Katz has his mastering audiobook that is sort of an uh, encyclopedia. I mean, I, I still read that thing. You know, for for a couple of years, I would read it front to back every few months, and you, you you pick up on new things that didn't quite make sense to you the first time. And I'll still, if I'm gonna, if I know I'm traveling, I'll grab it and re revisit some chapters here and there. So from a mastering standpoint, that's that's a really good resource. Um, but I think it's more about just keeping your eyes open and see what's what the new technology is, what's coming out. Um, for me, the big thing right now is, the, is this loudness normalization that's happening on the streaming services. Yeah. Th that's sort of, for me, that's my continued education because people want to know what's going to happen to their material when it goes out to these different places. Um, and it's not, all, it's not always the same. How do you deal with clients that want to continually make things loud? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm all, if someone wants a louder master, I'll, I'll always do it. But eventually we get to a point where I preface it where I don't think we're making it any better. It, it might be measurably louder, but I don't think it's adding any um, loudness perception. I don't think it's doing the song justice. Um, I think we're just sort of squashing the life out of it. And in particular, if it's anything like a rock band or punk rock where the drums are loud, um, once you reach a point where you're just squashing it so much that the drum transients just have nowhere to go. So you're just sort of like, then all of a sudden the drummer says, hey, where did the drums go? And you're like, well, everyone else in the band is asking it for it to be super loud. So, you know, there's trade-offs. And uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I'll, you know, I, I'm not, uh, at the end of the day, they're, they're paying me to give them what they want. So I'll, I will do it. You know, I do reach points where I have to give a little warning, like, hey, I don't think this is the best thing, but you can at least hear it and decide that for yourself. And, and yeah. What are your habits? What are your routines for yourself uh, personally? Well, you know, it's tough. You know, working from home, you know, it's easy to just launch right into your workday. You know, have a little breakfast and launch right into it. So, um, you know, I work a lot, and my, my wife's very understanding. With she knows that when you work for yourself, whatever you do, you got to be responsive to emails, and certain projects are a, a rush job. You know, like they need to be done, but have deadlines and things like that. So. Um, you know, I don't, you know, my habits, you know, we recently got a dog, so I've been trying to take more walks with the dog. Um, and I started a new diet, so that's kind of changing my habits. This I'm only a week and a half into it, so this is kind of all new for me. Hopefully that's not the all donut diet, right? No, it's not the all donut diet. I, I mean, I love so much bad food. I mean, that's, that's kind of why I'm on this diet, but um, never cared for donuts. I don't know what it is. 
<laughs> I love I love cupcakes, chocolate, all that bad stuff, but donuts never did it for me. Yeah. So that's my weakness. That's I have to exercise great restraint around donuts. Yeah, and that's the thing. So I haven't had anything like that, and it's weird. The first few days was tough, but now I don't have those sugar cravings. Um, yeah, what's your diet based around? Actually, the the guy that does my website told me about this diet. You know, he's basically you know I, I owe him a lot because he's helping me on a lot of levels. But it's called the keto diet, and he's um, it's, you basically what I like about it is it gives you a really strict outline of what you can and can't eat and the portions because. Everyone knows you should eat healthy, but without those guidelines, you're like, well, I'll just have one of these donuts, and then well, maybe I'll have two, and next thing you know, you're... So it basically, you eat this very specific diet, and it, it sort of tricks your body into thinking it needs to burn its stored fat for fuel. So you don't get hungry. I mean, you're not starving yourself. You're eating like reasonable portions. But because of the type of food you're eating, it, it triggers your body to burn the stored fat for fuel and you don't get those major hunger cravings for uh, bad food. It's really bizarre. And I, I didn't believe in myself. I thought there's no way I can do this because I'm so addicted to bad food. And like I said, the first few days were hard and then now it's, I'm seeing pretty good results. So I'm happy about that. Smooth sailing. But I still have a ways to go to get, you know, to where I want to be and then I can ease off of it. But I think it's a good reset for my diet, you know, I'm not going to do this forever. Right. Maybe a few more weeks or you know, two months tops. But it's sort of a good reset to remind you, like, how much you really need to put in your body a day versus how much you can, when you, especially <laughs> when you work from home. So I'm I'm looking forward to that, just the whole reset aspect of it. So you caught me at a weird time in that I'm sort of changing my habits, and I don't, I don't know where it's going to lead me. I'll be curious to hear hear the results at some point. And- how that works out for you. Well, super cool, Justin. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. And uh, I appreciate your your support out in the social media world uh, for the podcast and, and appreciate your, your being a listener. So great to chat with you. Yeah. And thanks for having me on. And thanks for putting out a great podcast every week. I mean, I really look forward to the new episodes. I'm not a big podcast guy, but you know, I, I've listened to a few audio podcasts that are more gear focused and those those just don't really do it for me. And then I was, I started listening to yours and I I started just listening to, you know, maybe the people I had heard of. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I just need to listen every week, even if I don't know who this guest is, because it's, I always learn something. So it's a great show and thanks for doing it. Well, you're welcome. I, I learned something every week as well. It's, (laughs) that's one of the reasons why I keep doing it for my own, (laughs) my own learning. That's, that's how I continue to learn is by chatting with people and asking questions. So yeah, you're never done learning, but yeah, thanks for having me on. And, uh, hopefully I'll see you at NAM in LA January. That'll be great, man. Uh, will you take care? All right. Take care as well. And I'll talk to you soon. All right, Justin. See you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Well, 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 there it is. Justin Perkins here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You guys got to check out his website. Justin has it dialed in. I'm totally redoing my website, and I've actually uh, you know, started to make up plans based around some of the things I see on his website. I think it's amazing. So kudos to Justin. We are out of time, so you know how we do it here. We got to thank everybody. Got to thank Chuck Smith, Cole Williams, and of course, Cliff Truesdell. Want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Lawton Audio. And thanks for listening. I appreciate it as usual. You know I do. Until then, take care. 
Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 